I wonder if you've ever felt out of your depth. Maybe, (laughs) what a stupid question. Maybe at a work project, maybe a difficult situation with a friend or a family member. Uh, It's not a good feeling, is it? Feeling out of your depth, feeling like you don't have what you need in order to uh, uh, help in the situation in which you find yourself. Well, imagine then how the disciples must have felt uh, in our reading today as they faced two uh, rather uh, overwhelming situations. The prospect of uh, providing hospitality to and caring for a massive crowd of over 5,000 people uh, and uh, the overwhelming situation of being out Uh, a long way out in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm. Uh, And uh, as we uh, recap these two stories in a moment and look at uh, just exactly what's going on and then consider what this teaches us about who Jesus is, one thing we're going to see is how uh, Jesus uh, meets these disciples in their uh, weakness, in their inadequacy, in their uh, hour of need, uh, and it gives them the grace that they need see a few other things too but first let's uh, take a look at the two uh, stories we have here Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water we see that uh, Jesus in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 is still ministering in Galilee we see that uh, he's been there a while you'll remember a couple of chapters ago that he was up in Jerusalem for Passover flipping temples uh, and now we see it's nearly Passover time again and Jesus is still in Galilee uh, so this, there's been a long period of ministry for Jesus at this point in this uh, part of the world uh, and of course uh, one might expect, as Jesus has been doing all sorts of miraculous things and teaching people and uh, whatnot, that he's gathered quite the audience. And we see that here, don't we? There's this huge crowd, but it's getting dark and it's uh, getting near the time where they need to do something about feeding them. And so, as he sits down with the disciples, Jesus asks them a question. He says in verse 5, Where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Okay, disciples, particularly Philip in this point case, how are we going to feed these people? Now, of course, Jesus is uh, acting like any good leader here, isn't it? Because Jesus knows uh, what he's going to do, but he's asking a challenging question in order to uh, provide an opportunity for growth and training for his disciples. And so Philip answers... It would take more than half a year's wages, verse 7, to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In today's money, in Australia, that's approximately $45,000 worth of bread required to uh, feed the people. That's a big problem, a big unsolved problem. You know, we don't just come up with half a year's wages just like that in order to buy food on one day for one large crowd Philip basically says I don't know I don't know where we're going to get enough bread for these people the problem is too big and then Andrew chimes in and gives the sort of answer that people are inclined to give when they're out of their depth 
but they want to try and help in some way if they can. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? We all know that moment, don't we, where we've been in a situation where the task seems so impossible and so you just do the best you can and offer the uh, only solution you can think of. Well, I don't know how we're going to do it, but hey, I've got five loaves of bread and two fish, maybe somehow uh, that, that'll help, that'll chip in. And of course, then Jesus does something rather remarkable with that offering. Jesus says in verses 10 and 11, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed those uh, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And not only from those five loaves and two fish does Jesus uh, make enough food for everyone, some 5,000 plus people, but there's leftovers. Verses 12 and 13. When they had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And rightly so, this miracle gets the people excited about Jesus. Wow, like look at this guy. He can feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus women and children, by simply multiplying bread and fish. This is amazing. This is the one whom we've been waiting for. And they say in verses 14 and 15, don't they? Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And we see a window into Jesus' mind here and a window into the people's mind here that they want to make Jesus king by force. And so Jesus withdraws from the crowd and the disciples are left there uh, before they head down to the boat. It's interesting, isn't it, that the people uh, think that they know who Jesus is, but they sort of get wrong what that means. And we'll have a look at that in a, more in a moment. But after uh, this happens and they withdraw, the disciples are there, evening uh, comes, and so the disciples decide to head out onto the lake, verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And as they head out on the lake, a, a storm hits. Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing, the waters grew rough. And they get a fair way out into the, into the lake uh, in the midst of this storm or before this storm hits. When they had rowed about three or four miles, we read in, verses, uh, in verse 19. And three or four miles, uh, some Bibles there put it into um, metric terminology for you. It's about five to six kilometres. Uh, and uh, I spent some time on Google Maps trying to work out... Uh, if I could help you understand just how far out into the lake that is so you can get a sense of how far away from land they were. But uh, from Simmons Park to the other end of the... If you stand at the edge of Simmons Park 
which is where the kids' playground is, and you look out to the end of the Tasman Bridge, that's two and a half kilometres. So five to six kilometres is twice that distance in one direction. That's a long way away from any hope of getting back to land in the midst of a storm. And it's a long way away for Jesus to turn up walking. Jesus is approaching the boat, walking on the water, and the disciples are scared. And that's right. That's a good response. Uh, John's Gospel uh, has such familiar stories to us that it's often so easy to, to miss the, the, the bizarreness and the weirdness and the amazingness of what's going on. You know, we think, why was Nicodemus so confused about the instruction to be born again? Everyone knows what that means. Why was the woman at the well so amazed that Jesus knew about her life? That's what Jesus does. Why were the disciples scared that Jesus could walk on the water? Well, because people don't walk on water. And when you see it, in the midst of a storm, it's scary. You'd think maybe it was a ghost. You wouldn't probably know what to make of it. It's not in your uh, kind of realms of plausibility structures. But as he gets to the, the, the disciples, as he meets them in their fear, he says to them, verse 20, Do not be afraid, it is I. Or it is I, do not be afraid. And so they trust Jesus at his word. And then as Jesus gets in the boat, they're seemingly sort of teleported straight to shore in verse 21. And then we have a little uh, side note about the crowd, verses 22 to 24, trying to make Jesus, uh, uh, trying to figure out where Jesus is. And we'll see next week uh, how Jesus tries to deal with this crowd who have misunderstood uh, exactly what it means for Jesus to be the prophet. But these two miracles teach us something about who Jesus is uh, and I want us to reflect on those things now. The first thing we see uh, is uh, as the crowd ex uh, realise that Jesus is uh, the prophet... Uh, these miracles show us that, yes, he is, and he's greater than the first one, and he's greater than Moses. Both the miracles uh, have similarities to, to the uh, miracles that Moses participated or led the people through, the, 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 the provision of God as the, uh, God's people uh, left the wilderness, which our, our kids are learning about at the moment. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, uh, Moses says to God's people this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This is the prophet the people think they have found in Jesus. And just as Moses led God's people through the Red Sea under his leadership and God provided them with provision of food, of manna in the wilderness... Now we see Jesus, this prophet whom God has promised, having command over nature, multiplying the loaves and fishes, providing for the people and leading his disciples to safety as he walks on the water, uh, command, has command over it, meets them in the storm and brings them 
to safety. This prophet is indeed here. And he doesn't need our help to make him king. He already is the king of the world. He already has power over nature. We simply need to trust him. Jesus is greater than Moses. He is the promised prophet. We also see, though, how God is in the business through Jesus of taking our weakness and our smallness and using those things for his glory and for his purposes. We have a great example of that with Andrew, who offers the little boys uh, bread and fish in verses 8 and 9. And even uh, in the disciples' fear in the, in the boat, uh, as they uh, see Jesus and he, hear him announce who he is and allowing them in, that's all they can do. They're, they're kind of at a loss in this storm, tired after a long uh, time rowing. But God is in the business of taking our weakness, our smallness, our insignificance, and using that for his glory and purposes. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Let me read to you from chapter 1, verse 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Or, uh, as one commentator reflects on this passage, Andrew does not see how the child's lunch can be of help, but just such weakness is characteristic of the way God provides. God chooses what is foolish, weak, lowly, despised and even non-existent he is the God of the impossible and the salvation of each of us testifies to this. It is precisely because the disciples are out of their depth that they are forced to rely on Jesus for their help. And that goes, as uh, the, that commentator notes, all the way for us to our salvation. None of us can save ourselves. All of us need Jesus. And it doesn't simply stop at salvation, but it carries on throughout our lives. God is constantly in the business of calling us to serve him in ways we are incapable of doing by ourselves. If you like, he's constantly saying, so... Chris, how are you going to feed the 5,000 today? And our answer every time is, it's impossible, I don't know. I think back five, nearly five years ago, probably a bit more than five years ago now, to uh, God's kind of uh, calling on me to come here with uh, Elisa and Just Amity at the time. Go to that church and try and help it and lead it to become a church that reaches all ages and stages. How, 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 can that, how could that be? How could I do such a thing? Why would I even want to do such a thing? 
And yet, God has used me, he's used you, to help this church reach all ages and stages. And, of course, we've got more to do. The task remains impossible and we continue to need God's help. But whenever we talk about being a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus, perhaps you pause and ask yourself, how could God use me to make a disciple? How could God use me to be a blessing through this church to our wider community? If you feel like that, that's a great place to be. Because that's the place that the disciples were in on the mountainside, looking at 5,000 people, thinking, how are we going to feed these people? That's the place that the disciples were as they faced uh, their uh, mortality in the midst of a storm in a lake and a man was walking out towards them. How will we survive this? And yet, in each and every situation, God provided what was needed as the people humbled themselves and admitted their need for his help. God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the lowly, the despised things, things that are not, to nullify things that are. Paul's writing that to a church in Corinth. And that's our story too, my story too. And so we need to trust Jesus. Trusting that he is who he, who he said he was, that he is the promised prophet, the Messiah, the one who has come to bring salvation to all. But also we need to understand Jesus as he truly is. Uh, the people rightly identify Jesus as the promised prophet but they wrongly understand what that means, don't they? They want to make him king by force, we read in verse 15. And as we uh, think about using our weaknesses uh, and uh, seeking to serve God uh, with the things that he has given us, it's easy, isn't it, for us to come up with our own ideas and to confuse them with God's will. But living as a Christian is about constantly submitting ourselves, our thoughts, our ideas to God and allowing God to speak to us through Jesus by his word to shape us and to help us understand him rightly. The disciples have to trust Jesus for who he is in the middle of the storm when they see him walking on the water. They don't fully understand what they're seeing. They're afraid, and yet they trust him at his word. It is I. Don't be afraid, verse 20. In those three words, it is I, Jesus reveals a lot about who he is. There's some debate about exactly what Jesus meant, but given the context of just having fed the 5,000 and the fact that he says it as he's standing on top of water. And we have places like Psalm 107 or Job 9 verse 8 that talk about God's sovereign power over the water. It's likely that in those three words, Jesus is revealing something to the disciples of who he is. 
a reference back to Exodus again, that Jesus is not just the prophet, but he is indeed God himself in the flesh. You remember the story of God appearing to Moses and calling him to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses says in Exodus 3.13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Or it is I has sent me to you. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the great fear for, your, for their lives, Jesus is saying, I, I am is here. Trust me. Let me help you. Let me bring you to safety. And just like the disciples, we too need to trust Jesus as God in the flesh. We need to allow his words to shape us and we need to offer ourselves in our weak, foolish states humbly to him and allow his power to work through us for his glory. You think you're useless? Then you're in the exact right place. God wants to use your uselessness for his glory. So let me finish by asking you three quick questions to reflect on this week. Who is it that you think Jesus is? A promised prophet? God in the flesh? Do you understand his word to reveal him as truly our saviour and Lord? Do you believe that God can use you for his glory, no matter how insignificant you may feel? And finally, do you continue to trust your, his word and allow it to shape you? Mm -hmm.